Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Genesis 3 through 8. Uh, a few words before we get into it. So last time we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and uh, everything was great. Everything had been created. Humankind was made in God's image, in God's likeness. Male and female were created, and God called it very good. But we know that that's not how things are, particularly through the lens of looking at uh, uh, last Wednesday's uh, insurrection uh, and protests that turned into a riot in our nation's capital, uh, we know that there's some brokenness, some serious brokenness going on with human beings. And that's the idea that really bookends this week of readings from Genesis 3 to Genesis 8, is this idea of sin, where sin comes from, what sin is about. Uh, I want to share one thing with you before getting in the text, and that's this idea that throughout all of scripture, you, you see this, uh, what I would call a meta-narrative, something that is embedded throughout all the narratives of scripture, sort of like a, a, a master key to unlock uh, any of the stories of scripture. And you can easily remember it by remembering the five G's. That's God, guilt, grace, gratitude, and glory. I'll say that once more. God, guilt, grace, gratitude, and glory. This is how our lives are structured. We begin with God. God creates us, sustains us, redeems us, but we fall into sin. There's guilt where we understand that we are not as we were made to be. So we've got God, then guilt, but then God responds to that guilt, not just with justice, but with grace, giving us something that we don't deserve. That is community, eternal life. God, guilt, grace. In response to such great grace, we respond with gratitude, where we try to know God. We try and build relationships with others. We try to care for the needy. Uh, you can see some of that in Matthew 25, uh, where we're called to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, visit the imprisoned, uh, heal the sick, and welcome the stranger. So we've got God, guilt, grace, gratitude, and then finally, uh, after all is done, we enter into glory with our Savior. If you're ever having trouble understanding a biblical passage, you can go to that five G's and start there. That'll normally give you like a good starting place. So it's with that in mind that we see G Genesis 3 through 8. There's sort of a cycle of guilt and grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude through all of this. We see this first in chapter three. There's a problem that emerges. You have this serpent who comes down and says, hey, Eve, you know, I know that God said you can't eat from any of these trees in the garden. And right there, the serpent misrepresents God. So frequently when we miss, it's because either we misrepresent God or somebody else has misrepresented God. And we don't know God well enough to be able to correct internally or externally that misrepresentation. We see in Eve's response, she also mischaracterizes God's command. She says, well, no, God said that we couldn't eat or touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She kind of overcompensates on the other way. And after she and Adam end up eating, you know, Eve ends up touching the, the fruit and nothing happens. So she's like, well, I, I'm not going to die, I guess. So she eats, Adam eats as well. And then there's consequence for their sin. Um, sin here is disobedience. 
Sin is whenever we fall short of perfection. And sin always leads to some sort of death. It may not lead immediately to physical death, but something definitely dies here. And if you've experienced a breach of trust, you see what dies here. This ability to have healthy, innocent, trusting relationships is something that is out of reach for human beings ever since. Between human beings, there's now the possibility for enmity. Between humans and creation, specifically the serpent, there's the possibility and likelihood of fear. Between human beings and God, there's estrangement. And yet, despite all of this, despite this rebellion, and despite all of the natural consequences for the first man and woman's actions, God offers grace. God clothes the newly uh, realizing that they're naked human beings, making clothes out of animal skins to replace the clothes that they made out of leaves. So the narrative continues by telling us about the, uh, the first progeny of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. It's interesting that in this story, Abel doesn't get any lines. In fact, his name in Hebrew is Havel. It's like a, a whispering of the wind. We'll see this later in Ecclesiastes. Uh, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. That idea of wind is what Abel's name means, Havel. It's as if he's only on earth for a short time. Um, there's some foreshadowing here, right? That he's going to die. Now, the murder that happens where Cain is, uh, there's this pride and jealousy that rises up in Cain. And there's that interesting conversation he has with God that sin is crouching at at, at your doorstep, is on the threshold. Um, You must master it or it's going to master you. Uh, Cain allows that sin, that enmity, that brokenness of relationship to take over him. So he goes and kills Abel. Now, why does God like Abel's sacrifice more than Cain's? We're not sure. Some people would suggest that this story sort of uh, gives a sneak peek at this enmity that's going to be between herdsmen and those who uh, uh, work with agriculture. Maybe that's a part of it. But what, what is clear is that something was off in the relationship between Cain and Abel. For Cain to look at Abel and say, you have something I want, so I'm going to get you. Instead of looking at himself and asking, how can I be better? That's an outworking of the spiritual death that happened when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But even in spite of that guilt, there's grace. That God marks Cain. God marks Cain so that everybody who encounters him knows he's under God's protection. God did not have to do this for Cain. Cain, as the first murderer, could have been made an example for all human beings for now until eternity that murder will get you the death penalty from God. But instead, God has grace. And we don't see whether Cain has gratitude or not, but we do see Cain go off and and find a wife and settle down, uh, beginning to, to found a city. Perhaps there's redemption for Cain. 
But that the Bible doesn't seem interested in sort of expanding on that. Uh, this these introductory stories in the book of Genesis aren't necessarily deeply grounded in history. They are deeply grounded in the human condition. And so the question of like. Where did Cain's wife come from? Well, that's not so much a question this, uh, the author is interested in exploring. We, who are more scientific in a slightly different way, may have some interest in that. And uh, there have been a variety of theories that maybe you know God created Adam and Eve, but God may have created other enclaves as well. Uh, some th- other theories suggest that, well, uh, the person who Cain ended up marrying, marrying was also a child of Adam and Eve who had uh, left the nest, as it were, and Cain married his sister. There wasn't a law against that then. Um, so there's, there's some ideas here that you could explore if you wanted to go down that path. But we do, uh, we're greeted after that with a couple of genealogies for the second half of chapter four and then for, for most of chapter five. Um, these genealogies that are worked into the narrative that tell you a little bit about each person. And I want to focus specifically on Lamech, who's uh, a, a descendant of Cain, I think the, the fifth or sixth generation from Cain. I think Lamech is a great example of the, the burgeoning sinfulness that takes place in Cain's lineage. You, you see in uh, Genesis 4, 23 and 24, this speech that Cain gives to his wives about, hey guys, hey, hey wives, you need to know that I am vengeful. I am proud. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'm going to be avenged 70 times sevenfold. And Lamech just seems like someone who can't really take a joke, you know? And I think that that's true of, of so many proud people, is that they're folks who, who can't look at themselves and chuckle. They, they can't abide their own imperfections. This is one of the outworkings of sin, is sin just tears down our relationship not only with others, but our relationship with self. We need to constantly be proving our own self-worth because we've destroyed the ability to see ourselves in God's image, even though God's image is very much still at play here. But we see this, this downward spiral throughout Cain's descendants where we can see the world getting bleaker and bleaker, that sin is becoming more the norm and less the exception. Now, we also see Adam and Eve's genealogy and their descendants through uh, their, their third son, Seth. And, and we see at the beginning of chapter 5 this really beautiful uh, restatement of God's creation that uh, it was in the image of God that human beings were created. A reminder that at the core of our being there is something good, something holy, something sacred. And as much as uh, we as, as Presbyterians uh, are fond of the doctrine of total depravity, of human brokenness, not fond of, of, of that as a situation, mind you, but we hold that, that original sin and that sinfulness pretty closely, uh, we cannot forget about the core image of God that was emblazoned on the human soul. So we, we see this genealogy and, and how this genealogy is worked into the narrative that tells us uh, a, a little bit about these children that Adam and Eve had. We've got Seth and, and you know, it goes on and talks a little bit about these other folks. And then we get to Enoch. 
And we hear this really interesting tidbit about Enoch that Enoch walked with God. And he's the only one on this list that uh, doesn't live like eight or 900 years. He lives 365 years, which interestingly, 365 days is the number of days in, in, in our year. And I, I don't know that they knew that at this time, that 365 days was about how long it took for the earth to orbit the sun. Um, but there's something poetic here that perhaps with every day of his life, every year of his life, Enoch dedicated it to God and, and somehow walked with God and disappeared. Whether that means that he was brought up to heaven without dying, that's some speculation people have, but it's interesting that Enoch is, is specifically indicated there. Then we, we see the oldest fella in the Bible, Methuselah, who lives to be 969 years old. And if you do the math with this genealogy, you'll see that Methuselah's 969th year was the year of the flood. And it's speculated that Methuselah perhaps died in the flood. We're not sure. But uh, let's get into the flood. So the flood, the story of Noah and the flood, happens in chapter 6 and goes through chapter 8. It's three chapters long, and there's like some deeply old narratives that make up these chapters. Uh, some folks think that there are a couple of stories that are stitched together, and they suggest that, hey, some, you know, one of these stories has to do with clean animals, another one just says, hey, take two of every animal. Whatever the case, we have like a beautiful uh, image of... God's struggle with human sin in the flood. But before we get to that, there's some really interesting tidbits in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter that I want to spend a little time on. We have this, this statement that the sons of Dah of God went down and had relations with the daughters of men. What's going on here? Well, I've, I've added a link in the show notes uh, to this uh, website called The Bible Project, which does this brilliant uh, series on spiritual beings. And one of the things that they suggest is that um, the, the early Israelites, the early Hebrews here, they were monotheistic uh, mostly, but they believed that there were other high-powered spiritual beings, angels, if you will, um, that s some were for God and others were against God. We see some of this played out in Revelation, where there are a third of the stars that the great dragon tears down out of the sky, I think in Revelation 12 or 13. Um, so the, the early uh, Hebrews perhaps thought that there were some fallen angels here, uh, who, who came down and tried to take advantage of the daughters of men to have progeny with them. These are like the demigods. Uh, you think Hercules if you're into Greek mythology. And it's these demigods that were looked up to as, as heroes. But these demigods were progeny of these fallen angels. And so imagine a society that looks up to the sort of troublemakers that are literally spawns of, of devils or spawns of demons. And, and that's a little bit of what some folks think is going on here. You'll notice later on um, in, in the reading of the Old Testament that the Nephilim will come up a couple more times. Anytime you see a giant like Goliath, the thought is that that person might have Nephilim blood in them. Now, my friend uh, David, uh, David C., uh, asked, well, what the heck could the wickedness be that would cause God to flood the earth? 
Well, I, there's, there's a couple ways of thinking about this, and one involves the Nephilim, suggesting that, well, God needed to wipe out these heroes, so-called heroes, and those who, who worshipped them as heroes, so that um, the, these folks who were trying to take over the human race who God had appointed to have dominion over creation um, so that God wouldn't have to worry about these folks anymore. And of course, that rings a little weird to our modern mind. We're not as entrenched in um, these myths as the Hebrews may have been. But the other way of talking about this, and Dave, I think it's a great question. I, I really appreciate you asking it, is uh, it involves a deeper understanding of our own rebellion and brokenness. When we are confronted with the guilt of sin, there is a couple ways that we tend to manage that. One way is to pretend like, well, we didn't do anything that was that bad, right? You know, maybe we hurt somebody's feelings, but shoot, you know, we're not Hitler. We're not consigning millions of Jews to death. Or, or you know, maybe we don't go, we, we don't go all the way up to Hitler. Maybe we just go, well, I didn't steal from anybody. I may have just hurt someone's feelings. I think that when we minimize our sin, that's not the healthy way of dealing with our guilt. And um, that's, in fact, uh, a really harmful way of dealing with our guilt because sin, even small sins, fracture relationships. And when a relationship is fractured, there is a deep sense of anti-creation that happens. Much as we saw with, um, in, in, instead of, God looking at everything and calling it good, now we have enmity between creation after the fall. In the same way, when we sin, even little tiny sins, there's brokenness that happens. There's, this sin infects all of creation. And God sending a flood, actively undoing the work that God did in Genesis 1 and 2, I think demonstrates how odious how noxious our sin is before God. The real way of dealing with our sin is, uh, you know, going back to the five G's. We go God, then guilt, and then we rely on God to have grace. Even in the story of the flood, we see grace, that God preserves a, a, a subset, a, a, a remnant of every creature, of all creation, um, God preserves all the animals. God preserves human beings. God does not do to us and to creation what we deserve. Instead, God preserves it and gives us a second chance to start over. God remembers creating us and making us in God's image. And we see at the end, God deciding that, well, this sin is going to be with human beings and I'm going to have to put up with it. And, and, and we see maybe the beginnings of, uh, or, or, or the hints of the plan to send Jesus Christ here. We see some of those hints also in Genesis 3, uh, where, where God says, uh, in, in cursing Adam and Eve, God says uh, that, that the serpent will bite uh, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, that uh, the, the descendant of the woman will smash the serpent's head and you'll bite him on the heel. That hints at the Redeemer in Jesus Christ, God's ultimate gift of grace. 
And it's in response to that that even uh, when we see junk like we saw uh, on, on Wednesday, uh, the, the January 6th, we can say that God is good and God will redeem us. So that's all that we've got for uh, this edition of the Old Testament Reading Podcast. Next week, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 9 through Genesis chapter 14. We'll see the end of Noah's story, and we'll start getting into the story of Abraham. Looking forward to seeing you then. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.